literally god damn it in honor of father stew what's the setting for the next big christian drama i'm katie rich and i say it's time to bring back some wild ass bible stories like jonah and the whale <laughs> hey it's me david the seven and a trump rally I, I don't know what we're learning but why hasn't it happened yet uh i am david ehrlich and i was going to say space uh you know after mel brooks <laughs> took jews in space I think, uh, you know, it's surprising that the Christians uh, haven't come there as well. I'm sure there's plenty of Christian sci-fi. I just can't think of it on the top of my head. Isn't gravity Christian in a weird way that not, I am forgetting not now? Not explicitly. Um, no, but I feel like there was like metaphor. Like, lots, lots, there's got to be lots of Christ metaphors in space. Uh, gravity, a very uh, not memorable movie, it turns out, for all the hullabaloo. Uh, but my real answer is going to be The Lands Between from Elden Ring. <laughs> Just because I wanted to shoehorn Elden Ring into this podcast somehow, because that's literally the only piece of entertainment that I care about at the moment. Um, that's not true, as you'll learn in this episode, but uh, it's certainly the one that has taken over the biggest part of my life. Set a Christian story in Lernia or Kaled, uh, in the why not? Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 388. It's pandemic 108. It is the week of Wednesday, April 13th. That's the day that in 1964, Sidney Poitier won the Best Actor Oscar for Lilies of the Field. It's a good movie. I watched it after he died. I was surprised by it. It's on YouTube. You can watch it right now. Oh, uh, yeah. YouTube. Yeah. Highly recommended. Um, and uh, the Oscars used to be in mid-April, which is terrifying Barbaric. to contemplate. <laughs> it's uh, like some Elden we... Ring shit. Like a, a boss. It's just like the bosses are the Oscars are in April. How do you beat them? Still, still, still never know what you guys mean by that. Uh, we are missing uh, Matt Patches this week because... Uh, a little Maverick Patches is out in the mm -hmm. world. We're Maverick very, Patches. We're very excited. That was really um, funny that Patches made a Bob. We had a baby. It's a boy joke, and I, I think a fair <laughs> number of the people replying to that tweet thought that his we're like Bob. His kid's name was Bob, <laughs> and not even just Robert, just direct Bob. It'd be uh, it'd be a flex. I wouldn't put it past him. Um, we don't know when Patches will be back. He swears he's not going to be gone for too long. But uh, we wish about, him like. The inane garbage, like the dark universe or some shit, like eight minutes after Bob was born. Well, this, is, this is the thing. You remember, oh, no, no, like, I'm not, you have I'm a newborn, not, you listen, get Kitty, that's not coming bored from a place and weird. That's simply in reference <laughs> to when he's going to be returning to the podcast. Which is probably yes. pretty soon, because he'll have his dumb, weird yeah. thoughts. Uh, and then he'll just fall asleep halfway through, um, which is what I remember from trying to do this podcast with a newborn. Anyway, he's gone, um, but hopefully some of you left us reviews to uh, celebrate the arrival of Maverick Patches. We actually have a review from Maverick Patches. <gasps> wow, I'm so proud of him. <laughs> <laughs> Baby's first iTunes review. One star, already a contrarian. Uh, and we have two new reviews. One that I see in the first line uses the phrase Gen Z Cusper, which I feel has appeared in about 50% of our reviews recently, which makes me think this is a repeat somehow, but... Uh, those don't really happen on iTunes, so I'm going to go ahead and read it anyway. It's from Dylan A.H. and say, fun. I'm a 98 baby, which makes me a Gen Z cusper. Since I guess we're doing that now. Uh, yeah, Dylan A.H. riding the Gen Z cusper wave. I got into this podcast listening to Katie on This Had Oscar Buzz talking about Money Monster and was delighted. Oh, man. Did, okay, okay, just let's put a pin in it right there. 
Money Monster, which Open can, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't believe that technically ever had Oscar buzz. I think mostly because of when it was coming out in the, the release calendar. I mean, like maybe there was I think like an that it opened can, and I think that George Clooney got the benefit of the doubt for a long, long time, and Jodie Foster directed I, it. I think maybe it's possible that in the lead up to anyone seeing that movie, someone had some errant speculation, but I do not believe that once that movie screened, anyone seriously uh, postulated that any Oscars come from that film. Um, well, if you'd like to hear more about the Oscar buzz for the for Money Monster, listen to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast. Are there, from, uh, are there last, last November or so <laughs> a, a strong podcast? But is there a section where there are receipts where they can prove that this indeed did have Oscar buzz? No, I think that's the idea is that you come in and if you feel enough that it has Oscar, it had Oscar buzz and it is interesting enough to talk about, you get Fair enough. Anyway, wonderful podcast. Go listen to it. Uh, and then, anyway, you were delighted how fun these guys are. I like that they're not afraid to disagree with each other's takes. Dave Seven's take that turning red could be, be a communism-related slur was a stretch that not even a world-class gymnast could make, but that's part of the beauty of the show. So many cultural <laughs> podcasters, even many I like, are mealy-mouthed and unwilling to say anything that a single person could disagree with. So I appreciate the, the banter that this show provides. Thank you so much, Dylan A.H., uh, and for encouraging Dave to go truly uh, out of bounds with his his takes. I wonder what he's yeah. going to come up with about the Northman in a couple of weeks. You're going to have to stay tuned to find out. <laughs> uh, PDX Cub fan says, thanks for responding to my question. And Patches was wrong. Uh, hi, I've never written a podcast review before, but I felt compelled for two reasons. One, thank you, David, for humoring my question on Twitter about whether the Northman is too violent for my 14 year old. They love the witch and to a lesser extent, the lighthouse. But it was hard. It was a hard no for my wife about taking them to the Viking revenge film. I appreciate you contextualizing the violence as akin to Braveheart. I think they would love the movie, but alas. Two, Patches was, in all capital letters, wrong about presenting the <laughs> below-the-line categories off-air at the Oscars. It did not work well. It was off-putting decision made by people who clearly don't care about anything but chasing that mythical populist Oscar watcher. From your lips to God's ears. It was just terrible. Your podcast is anything but. I've really enjoyed it, as has my teenager who listens on the way to swim team for music lessons. Shout out to PDX Cup fans, teenager. Uh, a great That's job. That's awesome. I may be writing this for my wife's account. If so, sorry, Peter. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, and thank you very much to Peter's entire family. And thank you anyone else who might be listening who would like to leave us a review that we will read on the show. Go on iTunes and Fighting in the War Room or... If you're not in the United States or like to reach us by other means, Dave, where can they email us? That's F-I-T-W-R dot, that's a period, podcast at gmail.com. Nicely done. Uticolin, man, you send you up. Freezing, colon, nine, nine, two, zero. All right. Uh, we're going to do a rare second segment on the same thing around here. I don't know when's the last time we did that, but we talked about Severance uh, probably halfway through its run or right around episode five or six. I can't remember where we it was before the Oscars. So my memory has been wiped clean, um, but it's over. And I think the show has only gotten more and more fans, uh, including, as we were saying before this uh, show began, that Damon Lindelof himself uh, wrote about on Instagram and how he loves it because, of course, it's extremely losty. 
Um, so we wanted to talk about uh, Severance at the entire end of season one. And uh, Dave, you wanted to ring that spoiler gong hard, right? Ding! Or, you know, you'll be hearing me uh, gong, not me saying ding, but it happens. <laughs> We're going to talk about the entire first season of Severance. How about that cliffhanger, guys? It's a good cliffhanger. It is. I hear it was Ben Stiller's idea. <laughs> I think he did take credit for it in an interview that I read. Yeah, you were saying that yeah. initially uh, Dan Erickson, I believe, is the name of the, the guy who came up the show. Um, yeah, that he yeah. wanted to take like to, to expand on what we've seen a little bit more in season one, have uh, a lot more information crammed in there rather than saving more for season two, um, season two not being assured at the time. And Ben Stiller pressed hard on the less is more approach, which I think for this show in particular um, is really effective because I think the worst thing for Severance would be to go uh, as hard on the mystery stuff as Lost did and really make that debate keep you watching rather than texturing it with with other things. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I found the season finale for Severance to be so incredibly effective. Uh, also because formally it was a departure from the rest of the season. It took on an entirely different structure. It was a really tightly packed, vacuum sealed 40 minutes of TV with parallel storylines that all culminated rather beautifully. Um, and only nine episodes as opposed to the standard 10, which might have helped with the with that pace we're talking about. Sure. I mean, I would have loved to see them do 10 episodes that were paced in the same way. But uh, what can you do? Um, but that's the cruelty of watching a television show as it airs, which is a, something that I try to avoid uh, when possible, is that <laughs> they, you know, they greenlit a second season of Severance the same day, more or less, that the finale aired. But they are not planning on shooting it until at the earliest, the end of 2022 which means that we are not going to be able to see it until, again, at the earliest towards the end of 2023, uh, which is barbaric. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, but that's just like the way TV works. I'm excited in like this, the year also of Yellow Jackets and I feel like the other half of Lost Storytelling um, that it did get truncated where it did because I was feeling uh, like I think the original creator intended that this season was going to have to, you know, give up some more goods uh, before volleying into the, the second season. I was pretty sure we weren't going to get like baby goat answers. That seemed like a sort of, you know, push something forward. Sure. But I think we'd uh, get more answers about Mark's wife and uh, something of her predicament because it seemed like if the season had a single form, it was maybe answering that question. Uh, but I'm delighted that it ended where it did because that, from what I understand, they shot the entire season with the context of having developed like two episodes past where it ends. So even if they do decide to chase a little bit more mystery based on their popularity, they won't be doing what Yellow Jackets did, which is sort of like threw a whole bunch of shit in the air and they're going to see what lands next season. Uh, they at least know where they're starting season two, which hopefully will allow for more of the same. It's so hard when there's like a breakthrough first season of something to, you know, like, I guess, a, a band trying to make a sophomore album to give us, you know, the same but more uh, the next time around. I think Severance could just do m another season of just the same. Mm. Uh, but eventually it's going to have to move up somewhere. Well, and I'm interested to see how it expands know, because it was so... On rails, as much as like Lost way, is such a, a frequent refrain as a reference point for the show, another show that it made me think of a lot uh, was Westworld. Um, mm. Not huh. necessarily thematically, although perhaps sometimes, but 
also in the potential and the, the dangers of the world building inherent to the idea uh, and how afraid it made me, you know, as at Westworld, I, I am still very bitter towards, not because I was like so invested in the first season, but I was just <laughs> it's so angry in every respect as to how they conducted themselves for, for everything in that show past the first season. And I can't think of it. It's still coming back in theory. I know. I still can't think of another TV show that has gone off the rails quite that hard. Um, and I think Severance has more discipline than that and more on its mind in, in a way. Um, but it, it, given the I, how, you know, with Lumen and the idea, the potential of Severance as an idea within the show is so far reaching. There's so many different avenues that could go down. There are obviously so many implications about what the company is doing in the world and what you know, Keegan represents and all the places that it could go that, you know, so much of the appeal of the first season was that it was really the drudgery of, of office life, that it was really the day to day um, of being in an office that often, you know, had the vibe similar to Mad Men, but more oppressive and hermetically sealed and uh, blowing it wide open would really, it's my mind, pivot too hard away from the core sort of work life balance questions at the heart of the show. Um, yeah. And so I, it's going to be a really careful balancing act. And I'm, I'm, again, it makes me wish that it was one of those things that I'd waited, you know, five years to get into knowing that people generally had responded well to the next few seasons. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a high pressure thing when there's some, it's, it's open, it's asked so many questions, not answered any of them, but I didn't really go into the finale being like, I need answers on what Kirigan does, or I need to know what the numbers mean. Like I didn't, care about the mystery so much it's just kind of like watching the point that it was going to leave all these characters oh. and and the anxiety you feel when it's building up to the cliffhanger you're like oh shit this is where they're going to do it like you, the the parallel action in that ending is so powerful um but you saying it talking about the work-life drudgery david like i want them to find a way to reset it and have them all back on that floor like yeah. i don't know what it would take narrative wise to kind of not undo everything that happened i think that would be be a betrayal but find a way to make them back in there have to kind of uncover some of these mysteries continuing um, and, and see well, what because to some extent, there, right? the like, people on the outside they're know. going to have to retain the any Audi dynamic. And so there's going to have to be a reason yeah. for them to have any. <laughs> and so whether yeah. it's in the severed floor of that one building or whether it's somewhere else, um, you know, they're going to have to have that duality. So I think maybe that will anchor the show in place a little bit. Um, I would hope. And obviously, you know, as, as uh, Ben Stiller has talked about and Dan Erickson, I think has talked about in some interviews. Um, It'll be really interesting to explore the relationship between both sides of Helly now that we know that you know she is sort of the only untouchable member of the Innies, but at the same time, mm -hmm. her Audi has the least regard for her. Um, and that's a really interesting dynamic. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, I like Lost for the most part. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I kind of it irked me just when it became increasingly mystery driven. And, and also I'm sort of, you know, it's not lost fault, but I'm retroactively bothered at it by, you know, how it changed the way that people view television. Um, but I think that already severance, as Katie was saying, is so much more character driven. Even in the moment, the suspense is really sort of locked into like the granular details of these characters and not big mystery. I mean, yes, the very last beat of the season is big lost energy. But, uh, you know, for the sure. most part, it's not about like, not Penny's boat. It's not about, you know, what does the statue mean? It's, it's really just about like, you know, them getting to the, not even the mystery of like what happened to his wife, but like how it, the grief feels to Mark or like what, um, 
Irving is missing from his life and how he feels about seeing Christopher Walken, you know, happily married or, or partnered uh, outside of set. I mean, like those are sort of the questions that it's asking, which I think are more person, more, more personable, more humane, more drilled into around the concept of the show, what it means to sort of be a fully fleshed human who has all these different yeah. sides themselves. I love what it managed to reveal about Irving in the end about how he's clearly been doing some digging of his own on the outside. Like he, that's, you know, the Audi world of all of these other characters besides Mark is so unexplored. So you, you see the huge potential there just with a little bit of shift of focus. Like it doesn't ha- it can work with a big change in the structure of the show. If you just make it the Irving season or the heli season or something like that, there's so many routes they can go. Yeah. And with overtime protocols and all of us working from home now, it's like, who's to say I was in a conversation planning some other shit and had to hop off and watch an episode of teen mom, young and pregnant. And someone was like, man, I want to meet Dave Zinni. And I'm like, Oh man, you're right. But it's also they can just overtime protocol us, whatever they want. But it's now. also, you know, in, in a really sort of perverse way, you know, not that I don't enjoy the freedom to work from home and, and think of it as sort of a, a luxury, but um, it does make you long for the concept of having an any to begin with, like of having, yeah. You know, and that's part of the fantasy the show is playing into, even if it's commenting on on the all-consuming nature of work in the you know capitalism in the modern age. Um, how I think even more than the show may have intended when Dan Erickson came up with the concept, you know, years before the pandemic, there is an element of wish fulfillment to uh, a greater element even of wish fulfillment because obviously Mark signs up for Severance as some people do because of the fantasy that it gives them because it gives them that separation, but. I think there's an even greater, more pronounced feeling now of like, if only I could make the cut off that clean between my work self and my home self. And now it's, you know, as nice as it's work from home, it blurs the lines that you feel like you're working forever. Yeah, I think I think it'll be interesting to see how they decide to turn down the sort of like dual, like higher concepts that they have going on right now, where it's like, creating an innie is something that is very much about like labor and labor practices and who does the work and who gets the benefit from it uh but also as we've seen sort of go on they're tying it to like you're sort of birthing like a new person that has like pieces of your yourself so i wonder if they're gonna take a hard turn like you know like occasionally star trek next generation and data would do into actual parenting at this point if somebody tries to have a relationship with their i mean the show is free to become an entirely different thing if it wants to but i would be interesting to see you know piggybacking off what dave was just saying how digging into the mystery of Kiri and and the cult like i mean they were talking so much about studying cults and nixium and shit like that around uh, the root of the show like how that cult mentality and and the the dark secrets behind that family whatever they're trying to do, tie into um, work environments and the idea of labor um, and, and middle management and all of those things. I would hope that as they flesh out those mysteries, they, they retain the core of where the show began um, and don't, you know, completely, you know, separate away from, from those ideas um, and the reality that the workers are dealing with. Um, but we'll see. It's got a lot of places to go. Severance. Everyone should catch up on it. There's lots of time to do so, presumably before season two. Yeah, you still haven't canceled since Ted Lasso season two because you forgot. So guess what? There's something else. <laughs> and they're bringing back for all mankind the uh, you know alternate history space show that all smart people seem to think uh, is good that I have not watched. So I'm uh, you know all in on Apple for a while, I guess. 
Ah, keeping that subscription going. I still have to watch Pachinko. Me too. Yeah. Me too. When you're calling, ain't calling back to you. I'll be side stage, mouthing lines for you. Humiliated by age, terrified you. Ah, uh, well, I said I was all in on Apple, but I watched another show on another streaming platform. <laughs> Shockingly, um, I watched all of Our Flag Means Death in a very short period of time. I think it, it's a very good background watch show. The episodes are about 30 minutes long. It's a comedy. It's got a lot of characters you can kind of like weave in and out of. Um, and I, the entire time I was watching it, I had heard, I'd heard like good enough things. I was like, okay, I'll watch this like Taika Waititi like pirate show. Um, and I'm watching it and being like, I think this is funny. Is it going to get funnier? And it had been sold to me as this slowly emerging rom-com between Blackbeard played by Taika Waititi and, um, Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate, both real pirate characters, um, played by Reese Darby, who you might remember as uh, Murray on Flight of the Concords. Um, so these two go way, way back, obviously. Um, and it takes a, a long time for it to turn into that. And even as it was like that storyline was emerging, which I found charming. I was like, I don't know if I like this show. I still don't know if I like this show. And then it got to the end and I was like, oh, well, now I want to see a second season. So I guess they got <laughs> me in the end. Um, it is funny. It's like I kind of wished it was 10 percent funnier a lot of the way a lot of the time that I was watching it, which I don't I guess can happen a lot of times with any comedy that isn't like exactly up somebody's alley. Um, but it's this very like kind of fuzzy and cozy take on pirates, even though it's got like plenty of swearing and some gore in it and stuff like that, because it's this guy, Steve Bonnet, who is like a fancy uh, Englishman who decided to become a pirate basically on a whim and puts together this crew who in the first episode are kind of ready to overthrow him because he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, but eventually they kind of all emerge as, uh, you know, lovable scoundrels on their own. There's various other like little romantic plots that happen throughout the show, including with a non-binary character, which I think is a uh, some kind of first, at least as pirates happen. Apparently all the uh, queer TikToks are all about this show, according to Joanna <laughs> Robinson, who is my um, TikTok uh, source of all knowledge. Um, so I don't know. I like I like having a 30 minute long show in my arsenal because I think having something like that you can dip in and out of is really useful. Um, and it did make me intrigued to see well, well, where they will go with it. It's kind of, you know, it's not like the most surprising show. It's not like Severance where it's like structured in a way where you don't know where it's going to go next. But by the end of it, I felt kind of accustomed enough to the characters in the world who want to spend more time in it. It's got really good guest stars too, like. Fred Armisen, Leslie Jones shows up, Will Arnett shows up for an episode. Uh, there's one where they go to a, a, a party full of fancy, mean French people, um, and Nick Kroll and Kristen Schaal are two of them. Um, so if any of those things sound appealing, I think it is certainly worth a watch. Is it, is it um, like extremely episodic or like extremely serialized? Does it lean one way or the other? Yeah. I think it kind of uh, threads the needle fairly well. Like you've got this like overarching plot where the guy that uh, Steve Bonnet kills in the first episode is uh, his brother is plotting revenge. And then like the relationship building is, I think the thing you need to follow, like you're not going to want to jump in at episode eight. Cause you're going to want to see, you know, the like romantic plot, at the beginning at the center of it between the two main pirates kind of develop. And then the other um, characters on the sides of that. So, you know, I think it's, it, I think starting at the beginning is the way to go. Even though I do think it, it gets stronger as it goes on. Fun. Yeah. Uh, I like it. It's been too long since I finished Black Sails, so maybe it's time for that same Is Black Sails about Blackbeard? Is it, is it the same period? Oh, yeah. Same period. And, uh, you know, also sexy in its own way, but also 
more historically accurate, which means, you know, rapey and violence. Yeah. So. Let's say this one is very like, no, no one really wants, they like put on like, uh, uh, plays and like a, like one of them, they create a haunted house to try to, uh, try to scare some Dutch sailors. A lot of really silly accents going on in the show. If that's something that uh, catches your interest. I like it. Yeah. At some point, Steed Bonnet was like a character in like Charleston history. And I just because I've known his name forever. And I don't know why I'm now trying to, to figure it out. Yeah, all that like early maritime, I guess we'd call it American history is very interesting when you like find a little bit of fiction that focuses on one person because they were also like incestuous. I don't know if it's because there weren't a lot of people or because, like, if you were, like, notable enough, you just got ensconced in record and, like, there weren't a lot of records, so it's, they're, like, the beginning. Pirates, man, they're interesting. Uh, Steve Bonnet died at the age of 30. Man. Oh. <laughs> did, did a lot. We, we all win. <laughs> that, was, that was a lot going on. Uh, now, well, I guess I'm going to go all the way down that Wikipedia page for a while. Uh, all right. Well, this is a, a landmark day, a banner day for fighting in the war room, uh, which is that we are going to be talking about a movie that I think everyone uh, who is here anyway, and maybe even Patches, who if I'm not even sure if you saw this, but if you did, I'm going to speak for him anyway. Unreservedly loved. Uh, this does not happen often. You could probably count on one hand, but uh, no better place to do it than now. Uh, we are going to be talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. The new movie by Daniels of Swiss Army Man and, uh, I guess, Turned Down for What fame, among other projects. Uh, this is a movie <laughs> that you, if you listen to the show, have probably heard about by now. We have uh, waited uh, a hot minute for everyone to catch up and get a chance to see it out in the stick. Everyone meaning me. That's okay. right. Um, and hopefully mm -hmm. some of you. I mean, there's really no need to go into spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie, don't feel the need to peace out now. Um, but we're only going to jack up the hype. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can get into some spoilers later, right? I, mean, right? I, I, I really I, want to. My brain is is failing to understand how we would need to do that. But whatever. I mean, if we get if we if we broach that territory, I'm happy to call an audible and bang the gong. Um, if a, if a gong randomly pops yeah. up, that's, that's fine. Uh, yeah, you will be duly warned. But uh, the gist of this movie uh, is it's a multiverse film. And unfortunately, we're now, we're now at the point where I think the term multiverse probably needs no further explanation. But it is about um, a Chinese-American uh, 60-ish year old woman played by Michelle Yao named Evelyn Wang. Wang? Evelyn Wang. And um, yeah. she is, or is it Wong? I should know. I've seen the movie twice. Um, but someone, no one's going to correct me. I'm just going to dangle out in the wind. No, I don't know. I think know. it's Wang. Wang. Wait, you, made Wang. Me, you made me second right. guess. Uh, because Wang. one of the producers of the film, their last name is spelled Wang, but it's pronounced Wong. I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, anyway, Wang, in this case, um, is she owns a laundromat with her husband, uh, who's played by Ki He Kwan of The Goonies and Indiana Jones Temple of Doom fame, now all grown up. We'll get to him in a minute. Um, and they have a, a daughter, uh, and she is sort of 
um, at the uh, sort of the edge of a rope, feeling very the humdrum tedium of her life, of her existence, um, thinking a lot recently about all the other paths that her life may have taken, uh, wondering if she has reached her potential, knowing, I think, in a way that she hasn't. Um, her father, uh, who is um, 90 some odd years old, uh, and is played by. Thing. I mean, we were supposed to say it all at once. Um, oh. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. truly, you didn't. You didn't help me practice. Truly, one of the most iconic people to have ever been in the movies. I think you can say that almost objectively at this point, given that he's been in over six hundred of them, ninety-three years, ninety-one years old now, uh, and still just you know completely full of vim and vigor and alive, and gives a wonderful performance. Ninety-three, movie. ninety-one when they shot it. Um, but he, or yeah, I mean, whatever. But uh, he's, he's uh, he is coming to visit. He is very old school in his ways. Um, she is feels the pre- I mean, there's so much to set up here. But like, essentially, essentially, her she's unhappy with her marriage, and her business is being audited because, uh, and they have to prepare their taxes for Jamie Lee Curtis, who's playing a character named uh, Brenda uh, De Deborah, Brenda. Brenda De- Deirdre Bodirdra. Bo- Bo- I'm sorry. I've seen this movie yeah, several yeah. times, but it's been a few weeks Bo- and everything's scrambled in my it's head. It's Bo Deirdre. Deirdre Bo And uh yeah, I mean she she everything is sort of happening at once. It's falling apart. She goes to the IRS office, and while she's in the elevator up to this fateful meeting that's gonna determine the fate of their business, uh her husband seems to have an out-of-body experience. His body seems to be hijacked by a version of him from another dimension who says that all the multiverse is in danger and that only Evelyn uh, has the power to save it. Why does she have the power to save it? It's very, very hard to explain. That's why uh, her husband's character is one of cinema's great exposition machines. Uh, You would be hard pressed to find, and certainly Christopher Nolan could take some notes, uh, a, a character who is able to squeeze so much heart and emotion and hurt and joy uh, from constantly rattling off increasingly, you know, outlandish exposition. Um, but the, the fact of the matter, the, the, the core of the issue is that uh, Evelyn is the worst version of herself across the multiverse, the one who has achieved the least vis-a-vis her potential. And that through a series of, um, you know, galaxy brain level logic that only makes sense to Daniels and the people who are in the middle of watching the film, um, makes her uniquely qualified to sort of universe hop or verse hop um, across the multiverse, absorbing skills from the versions of her in the parallel universes that are adjacent to the one that she's in um, and, and fight back against the great evil force of nihilism, Joe Butapaki, uh, who I will not say more about right now. I mean, I guess that's sort of in the spoiler territory that we can get to, I suppose. Yeah. yeah but we can um, but uh, she it is essentially tasked with leading a war against nihilism at the lowest moment of her life, at the most overloaded moment, I think, of all of our lives um, in a film that is really, I mean, any sentence that says that it's about as though it is somehow um, comprehensive is, is a fool's errand. I mean, this is a movie that watching it once, watching it twice, potential meetings, even for a movie as prescriptive and, and, you know, unsubtle as this one is and laying it on thick with a lot of its meanings is still so rich with potential takeaways. And I've seen so many interesting takes that feel not at all far-fetched and speaking to the Daniels uh, where their heads were at, we're making the movie so interesting. We'll get to there. We'll get to that. All the stuff is, is really richly in the text of the film. 
Um, but I think in the most macro possible terms, it is a movie about confronting the despair of, of living in sort of a godless universe and feeling, uh, feeling that weighing down upon you and finding joy in the life that you do have and the people you are fortunate enough to spend it with. Um, and in this case, you know, particularly your family and sort of making peace with the choices that you've made and the people that have come along with them. Uh, and on those grounds, in addition to several others, it is an immensely, in addition to being a hilarious movie, uh, thrilling action fights, some of the most, you know, enjoyably choreographed action and Kung Fu, um, that I've seen in ages, uh, and just, uh, you know, it's skipping between parallel universes several times in a scene at some point, it feels the middle hour of the movie. It's not three hours long, but like the middle portion of this three-act movie feels like an hour-long riff on the memory hole sequence from being John Malkovich, um, or you know, you can cite other Spike Jones uh, or or Michelle Gondry um, early movies, Charlie Kaufman stuff in in that vein. But um, it, it is really sort of uh, an immensely beautiful movie to me about family and about holding on to each other to pull in a tug of war type style the people you love back from the abyss uh and we're cutting you I'm off done. soon david we're cutting you off soon okay um i'm gonna let dave talk but i wanted to go back to what david said 15 minutes ago um about what you said about the logic of the movie only making sense to the daniels and people in the middle of watching the movie and i, I think that it was so spot on because like I hear about something like this being like, it's got all these rules and you have to jump around and it's so convoluted. Like this is what I heard about the latest matrix movie, which I didn't see because it seemed intimidating. Um, but the experience of watching <laughs> this movie, they are so skilled at taking you through the logic of their movie and how, how one thing leads to another and making it all feel anchored with either Michelle Yeoh at the middle of it or someone giving exposition or a really silly like fantasy sequence or, you know, jumping into another universe. It all feels so correct when you're in the middle of it. This movie is really accessible in a way that I wasn't fully prepared for when I went to see it, both because they really they zero in on the emotions. There's like, you know, more or less four characters in the entire movie. Um, and for for all the craziness going around them, it doesn't really veer away from the really core themes that you were talking about, David. It's so smart the way it's put together and david having seen it twice maybe you're able to figure it out more because the whole time i was watching it i was like i don't know how they did there is a pleasure in this effect i mean like the matrix is is a very obvious touchstone for this movie um a movie sure. that really uh, channels a number of the standout films from not only just the late 90s and the early 2000s but 1999 in particular i mean the first act courses with the pulsing anxiety of magnolia uh, the whole premise relates to um, the Matrix. There are elements of being John Malkovich, as I mentioned earlier. And I thought a lot about Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine is there as well, Michelle not 1999, but definitely fits the bill. Um, yeah. And even, you know, a, a movie I've referenced to them, you know, something like Millennium Actress, which is a few years later by Satoshi Kon. I mean, this feels like the closest live action equivalent that anyone's achieved to what that movie was able to do using animation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it does, seeing it the second time does take off some of the guardrails in terms of like understanding the hows and whys of what's working, but the movie, I mean, and it all checks out uh, and it's working, you know, emotionally in a way that it wouldn't even matter necessarily if it didn't. But I think it was just, 
it wasn't understanding what was going on better because I think part of the joy is watching it with one half your brain trying to keep up with the information that's coming at you and contextualize what's happening on screen and the other half just like drunk on the stimuli that is uh, so hilariously and sort of uh, compellingly orchestrated in front yeah. of you. But, but I also but like, didn't I never I never didn't know what was right, going right. on. That's the thing that blew my mind. Totally. But like I think when you're when you know what's going on, when you have that confidence seeing it a second time, you're able to really appreciate the nuance, the emotional nuance that someone like Kikwan or is giving to bring in the exposition or that Michelle Yeoh is bringing to trying to interpolate it. Um like there's so much happening for these characters on a really basic emotional level. Um, that is buried under layers of nonsense, but never in a way that suffocates it. It's always that, that and non and nonsense, nonsense that is always relevant to what's happening on the emotional level, not just kind of for the sake of exactly. It. Dave, yeah, you saw this movie too. Dave saw the movie. I did. Yeah, I know. I really enjoyed it. Um, I agree with everything you guys said. Trying to think how to best add to it, which is, <clears throat> uh, this movie gets better the more you try to figure out if they came up with something or if they're it's like a literal homage a lot of people say homage where they just rip something off uh this movie's filled with like actual homages uh whether it's like the sound so, uh, the song story of a girl or movies all the movies david mentioned some movies that david hasn't mentioned uh be it like a Wong Kar Wai film or 2001 where ratatouille rat, ratatouille Things come uh, up directly, and I feel like they work really well in the story that's happening, uh, even though it seems like they, a lot of them would be very niche. Uh, they're not. And I think it's one of those like rare examples of like enriching in the ways that like The Simpsons enrich, enriched me as a child, where it's like it's not just um, doing references or having someone that looks like Shrek yell donkey and think that that's like a joke enough. They found uh, the points where like pop culture sort of edges in on the side of your mind and sort of use it as an alternate dimension for the person watching the movie. Hmm. And so it really kind of un unrolls in a very surprising way where I spent most of the, uh, I went and saw this with Java I think it was our first time in the theaters since March 2020. What was, uh, what was Java's so, take? Uh, I think she really liked it. Did I she find we it both... overwhelming? Because I, it was the first movie I'd seen in six months and I was kind of like, oh shit, this is what big screens are like. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think there was like a little bit of, uh, yeah, the you know, theatrical experience. But again, it's such like a pure movie that had to be a movie. And that also tells a really great story and that has great performances and like great action. This is like a grab bag of a movie that like even with their previous stuff, I guess to go with the two David sided turned down for what the penis destruction uh, music video, which I love, but I wasn't going to go share that with my girlfriend and Swiss Army Man, which I also love, but I also feel plays to <clears throat> a certain person of like man that, uh, is in a certain type of depression better than I think it plays to everybody. This movie, I think the first thing that I said to Java coming out of it, and this is also for our reviewer, was how dare Turning Red exist in the same year as this movie. 
<laughs> and just like think that just making it in a panda was enough to like probe the like true depths of family and living in a postmodernist hellscape uh, that has oh. boy bands. I feel like this really, uh, you know, nailed that and everything else. Um, I, I, I can't condone any experience. turning red bashing only because I haven't seen the movie. Uh, but, um, you know, I think I, I, I feel happy for them to yes, exist in I, the same universe, which I think is good. a message I'm, that everything I'm everywhere glad. all at once would support. And I think it's it's it seems to be going down the storm that there are two such strong and specific movies about Asian, not Asian American, because Tony Red's Asian Canadian, but um, sort of Asian immigrant families uh, that are really lean into that in a way that that at least this movie does again i haven't seen turning red but um the specificity of the relationship between evelyn and her daughter joy uh is is really one of the movie's many highlights and something that it drills into even more as the movie goes along um and yeah i mean it's just there's you know you, it's kind of a sliding doors concept obviously it's something that's been done by other movies many times before but the way that daniel's minds work it's that it's not, oh, I missed that train. And so um, I didn't meet that guy. Yeah. And the the road not taken part of this type of plot goes by really yeah, but fast. The road, the road not the taken is also it's not just the road not taken, but it's like the 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 formative granules of the universe are developing differently. So that in uh, in the multiverse, in, in one of your it's not that you just have different color hair. It's that, you know, humanity never evol evolves out of rocks. Or like life never evolves beyond rocks. Or have or people have hot dog or, fingers. People have hot dogs for fingers, famously. Um there are some that are a little bit closer to the world that we recognize, you know, where where Evelyn grew up to be as she stayed in China rather than leaving to the great displeasure of her father. And became a film star uh whose life and there are so many meta textual places of delight in this movie that are very deliberate um you know to the point that in the timeline where she is a movie star they're using footage from the crazy rich asians press store that michelle Yeoh went on yeah um and uh, then she gets and but it also imagines this alternate future where uh ki Hoi kwan could be a movie star as well i mean he gets to be a movie star here but he wasn't able to find roles. Uh, you know, there weren't roles for him in the 80s that were meaningful, that weren't stereotypical or degrading. And so he never really advanced his, his on-screen career and he didn't really feel like there was an opportunity there. And he went to Hong Kong. He did assistant directing for Wong Kar Wai. He was assistant I love that he worked for Wong Kar Wai, like learning that after seeing the very Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, and here he gets to be Tony Lung. Uh, and yeah. uh, it's it's... So touching, but it's also not, it's not just sweet. His performance is like one of those things where you just want to like stand on top of the tallest building you can find and just shout that like it, 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 if the Oscars didn't exist, you would want to will them into existence just so you could give his performance here <laughs> an award. Uh, You're going to regret ever saying that you would will the Oscars into well, existence. Well, unfortunately, you know, the Oscars are not going to, uh, I, 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 I do not have enough confidence in the Oscars to think that even though Michelle Yeoh and, uh, and Kia Kwan are so incredible in this movie and so obviously sort of top of the class for this year so far. I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to be right. I'm not giving up I'm hope. not giving up hope, but um, I would be pleasantly surprised. But, uh, I mean, Michelle Yeoh maybe I, has a chance just because she has been due for so long. Yeah. I mean, I tweeted this about uh, uh, Kia Kwan, but there's the, the shot, like, you know, there's a few times where he, like, 
removes his glasses or puts them back on or puts his hand in front of his face to kind of transform into the what, alpha Waymond, I guess is what they call him. Um, and there's like, I feel like there's just one shot where his face just moves yeah. and it's an entire transformation of character. Very similar actually to what um, Adam Scott does in Severance in the yeah. scene where he goes up and down the elevator and turns into his any self. And it's just, I don't know how people do that. Like acting, I think often gets overrated as a skill, but that's fucking crazy how well he there's, does that and how effectively he is both versions of the character. I mean, not just both. I mean, there's these like, yeah, many. Those are the two main. Those are the yeah, two. But main there, ones. there are a number of, of great profiles about him that will really get into the detail of how he turned his life over to his performance to make that happen. But he was originally supposed to be played by Jackie Chan, and that character was going to be the the lead. Um, and when Jackie Chan didn't happen, they made the Evelyn character the lead and really made sure to get Michelle Yeoh for it. But you, there is a Buster Keaton slash Jackie Chan like quality to what Katie's describing in his performance and how sort of yeah. precise the movements are, but then slapsticky, but there is a layer of, of heart and, and of hurt and of sort of, you know, falling short of the life that you not only want it for yourself, but want to give to somebody else. Um, but also just like this kernel of delight that the character represents and in a childlike way that Evelyn can't appreciate. And when the movie begins and he's going around putting googly eyes on everything to, put you know put joy in places where there's only tedium um but it's the kind of thing that jackie chan has never really been much interested in doing um and i think and again it's one of those places where the years of frustration that the actor has had to put up with off screen you know not believing there was a place for him until he saw crazy rich asians again going back to the fucking patterns of the universe um and that movie sort of bringing this one together and um, and feeling a FOMO and a sense of uh, potential that he you know came back to acting, but I mean it's 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 beautiful on so many different levels. Spoiler gong okay. territory. Sure. Um, yeah, really, really spoiler gong is I want to say something. <clears throat> Go for it. Um, we brought up the hot dog fingers earlier in Ratatouille, and the thing that like one of the myriad, many miracles I found in this is that they they show the people with the hot dog fingers and they have the, the whole sequence, which I thought was so funny the first time around where she thinks that the title of Ratatouille is Rakakuni. And then they just go back to it and back to it and back to it. And you think that like it's going to exhaust the joke, but instead it expands it. And then you wind up with this really beautiful, heartfelt scene of Michelle Yeoh and Jamie Lee Curtis, where Jamie Lee Curtis is playing the piano with her toes and they're like at home in their apartment and it's really sweet. And then like she's got Harry Shum Jr. on her shoulders running through the streets in his chest outfit. I just, the way that they stick to their guns and the way that they establish these worlds and like throw out a joke and then build on it and build on it is really incredible. It takes so much confidence to do something like that and just like really exacting skill of knowing what the audience is going to go along on the ride for, what they'll tolerate and, and pushing as far as they can go. I think it's amazing that they came up with this rule that's like, to universe balance, you have to do something unaccepted. Like, that's... <laughs> You could make a whole movie out of that rule and they make it so well, which yeah. like, did it, did it start with, let's do a fight scene where the, everybody has stuff up their ass or did it just naturally build to that? I honestly yeah. can't tell. I saw it. I, I went to see it at like 1230 on a Friday afternoon. So it was like, there were a good number of people in there, but it was more muted screening. But the laugh at the butt plug statue got the first time. And then the like growing, like growl when people realized what was going to happen was incredible it was it's such a small group and everyone was right there with it yeah i mean it's so inventive but always in the service and so juvenile a lot of times and so silly and and completely unashamed of that but always similar to the way swiss army man was always in this in the service of these really uh precious but not overly so emotional ideas that really resonate 
you know, with me as someone who, you know, and I think anyone is often putting up walls of you know, cynicism or being jaded to protect their own vulnerability. Um, you know, I, I think the movie works on that level, but it's, yeah, I mean, everything it does, it does so well. And it does really, you know, to, in ways that could be paradigm shifting in terms of the, the way that Hollywood thinks about what's possible. I mean, the VFX team for this movie was something like six or seven people. Um, and what they pull off. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get how yeah. they did that. How? I mean, but they, I mean, well, the, the really boring answer is that they scoured for talent on YouTube. I mean, they found people who could do these things who were not in the studio systems, um, who could work on the budget and they could still afford to pay well. And they put them in an environment where they could prosper. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, they found the fight choreographers on YouTube. They choreographed fights truly in the style of, you know, golden age of Hong Kong, Kung Fu, long fluid takes, really wacky comical choreography that still packs a punch. Um, I mean, the fight that uh, Waymond has with a fanny pack is just so satisfying. Um, it moves away from the yeah. Kung Fu stuff a little bit in the second half as all the universes begin skipping around, skipping around. But um, it's, it's all, it's all just like, so deliberate and and so funny. I don't know. I mean, like, I there there are just so many. You could have a million different conversations about this movie with a million different people, and they would all, I feel like, eventually be about different things. Um, and that is something that is uh, you don't get to say about even some of the movies that you love dearly. Um, so it's so yeah. good. It's so Rock good. I mean, the the music by Sun Lux is fantastic. I love how they interpolate the the, uh, uh, the Claire de Lune. Um, and there's even a Mitski David Byrne song at the end for good measure, which absolutely rules. Uh, it, it really sticks to landing. It's the performances are so good. I mean, it's like it's the kind of thing where you're like, what do you make a movie about now after you see it? Because it feels like it touches every possible base. Um, and you almost wish that there were, you know, a thousand more universes that could explore. But the idea of this movie being any more stuff than it is, I think would reduce you to ash. Uh, it would be so exhausting, but um, it's really special stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, I look, I mean, there's been, I've seen some, some blowback about it already from people who don't have a tolerance for, I think how on the nose it can be about the philosophies sure. and ways of living that it's espousing as it goes on. Uh, where to find solace in this, you know, cold, dark void of a, of a universe. Um, and that's fine. I think uh, this is not the kind of movie that was made by people who need everyone to like or even be able to understand what they they do. But I do think that if you like Swiss Army Man, there's a very good chance that you, this will resonate with you, too. I never saw Swiss Army Man, I realized, because uh, it came out right when uh, Charlie was born and I just like didn't get to it. And it kind of sounded stupid to me. And I knew people who didn't like it. And now, obviously, I have to see it because I'm uh, so blown away by it. Yes. It's, it's great. In many of I know I've heard you guys talk about it. Um, I mean, I think every Daniels movie that they ever make, and given how much time and effort went into this one, I wonder how many that, that will be. Um, is going to start with a premise that on paper sounds just completely innate. And that's and, that's sort of what yeah. I love about it. Like when I went to film school, I wanted to make, you know, like your David Fincher movies or whatnot, like extreme directorial control, dark world, investigate characters that are mostly like about 
action and, you know, happen to get their feelings hurt along the way. And now I'm like, imagine being so talented that every single one of your log lines is like, fuck you, that's not a movie. And then like mastering it the two times you go out. It is. It is I mean, the beauty amazing. of the mapping Swiss Army Man in their quiver now is that they can show that movie, and obviously now they can show this movie. But like, they could show while they were making this one, they could show that movie to people who would be like, "Oh, okay, I see what you're doing." But the first time around, how they managed to uh, you know sell people on the idea of a movie about explosively farting corpse, it's sort of beyond me. But they don't really know any other way to think. They are completely uncompromising in that sense. They want to chase their imaginations down these rabbit holes and god bless them for doing that another thing i want to say it's something that's been talked around talked about a lot around this movie this is not at all in spoiler territory is that you know in addition to everything else or maybe at the root of everything else this is a movie about a woman who is trying to do one very simple clerical task and feels hey. by virtue of doing that like the entire not just her universe but every universe is weighing upon her and to that sense it is maybe the, and this is even before you get to the style and the, the, the pace of the structure of the film, already maybe the best examination of ADD or ADHD that I have ever seen in a movie. Um, and Dan Kwan, one of the Daniels, has talked a lot about realizing by virtue of writing this movie that he had ADHD and uh, getting diagnosed and, and dealing with it through the process of making the film. But it, it it's not something, you know, people think, talk about it as mental illness and perhaps it's how it's classified. It's not something that I, who has been diagnosed with ADHD forever and medicated since, you know, a very long time, uh, tend to think of as a mental illness or like in the, not even, they don't, maybe they don't think of it as a mental illness, but in terms of mental health, I mean, it's such a logistical thing for me. It's so much about just getting through the day that I, I tend not to think about it in those terms. Um, but I suppose it is neurodivergent, but I, it, this is, it's weird to see a movie about something that makes you feel seen that you never really feel needed to be looked at before um, in this context. Mm. And I was just watching this movie. I was just like, holy shit. Like this is, this is what it feels like this movie about hot dog fingers and going down these Wong Kar Wai rabbit holes and uh, maximalism overdrive and having the entire world on your plate when you're just trying to make the simplest, the simplest of decisions is like the closest approximation of how it feels like every time uh, I'm like, oh, I have to do a small errand. I need to pay my son's medical bill. <laughs> like I need to do whatever. Um, and unfortunately, the things that delay me from doing that are nowhere near as fun as they are in this movie. But uh, it, I think now that the whole world living in 2022 this interconnected, you know, everything all the time existence, as Bo Burnham has sung about, um, will it can feel this to a certain degree, even if it's not baked into the way their brain works. It, it, it is really valuable to have a movie that explores and expresses both how it feels in the macro sense to be a person in this world right now, but also in the micro sense of how it feels to be a person in this world right now whose brain is also another layer of that of that uh, you know overabundance overfulness uh and distraction on top of everything else um and how exponential david 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 we're gonna cut you off again this is you you talking about how your brain is overloaded well, you know, case talking point. about it forever uh, uh i think we should say stephanie sue's name uh oh man she yeah it's amazing as uh, uh as 
uh, Joy Jobu Tabaki slash Joy. And you uh, worked with her, uh, what, yeah, more yeah, than she, a decade we, ago? We went to NYU at the same time, so that means when I needed extras for a bar shoot for Four-Faced Liar, she was there. She was also part of the Hammercats. Uh, Stephanie is a fantastic person uh, that uh, I was like, why, why is she so familiar? And then went to her IMDb and scrolled down, and not only did she have like, a bit part uh, in... Uh, Shang-Chi, which I noticed, but I uh, had completely forgotten that, yes, she was an extra on Four Face Liar. So thank you, Stephanie. We share one of the same uh, IMDb credits, which is bar, <laughs> bar, bar patron. She really is great in it, and she has the same thing as, uh, you know, Michelle Yeoh, as great as she is in this, like, her character is consistent throughout the movie, basically. Like, you don't see too many, like, the other versions of Evelyn are not so different, but she, uh, Stephanie Sue and uh, Kehu Kwan, play so many different people and the way that she transforms, especially the, you know, these long sequences of her as the, this nihilistic villain kind of explaining why the world is bullshit. Um, and then, you know, honestly at the very end, like, I'm like, Oh God, I really hope she comes back around. I don't know why I had my doubt about a happy ending here, but maybe that's how convincing she was. And she has the most incredible costumes and makeup of the year. I cannot imagine anything topping it. Yeah. I want to see it again uh, when it comes out on, I could, I could go frame by frame just in terms of like, how many of those are practical? Like, because they could have fit in digital costumes, but then again, I don't know how complex that effect is because it's so fast. She embodies so many cool costumes that the ones that she sets in for any amount of time are very uh, visually striking and memorable. The dress that she wears with the her hair baited into the braided into the shape of a bagel above that like white dress is. Uh, mm -hmm. I haven't done a side-by-side -side comparison. Maybe they're not alike at all, but it reminded me so much of the dress that Bjork wears in the Who Is It video. Uh, for the three people out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's just one of the, you know, a movie that as you're watching it is going to set electrify like so many different neurons in your brain. As Dave was talking earlier about like all those pop culture yeah. reference points, that was just one of them for me. But uh, I think there are, Daniels would be happy to hear about any number of different ones, uh, you know, completely unintentionally that they that they managed to light up. Yeah, there's so few photos of her costumes on the Internet, I guess, because, you know, you don't want to get too spoilery. Um, but man, there's so much to. Why is her conservative lesbian daughter dressing like that? <laughs> I have to buy a ticket and find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my main thing from watching this movie was like, I, as I said, like I hadn't seen the movie in theaters about six months. The last one was like either Eternals or Dune, whatever order that happened in. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's so overwhelming. I'm so like excited to be here watching what a movie can do and like literally laughing, literally crying like. Uh, I just had like every every movie experience you could want going into that. I was so so happy. I love that you got to have the Spider Man No Way Home experience, but with a better movie. That's <laughs> act, that's something I wish for everybody. I uh, still haven't seen that movie, so uh, I guess I'll uh, watch it at home like a heathen at some point. <laughs> like it was probably meant to be. Come on, everything everywhere all at once. It's everywhere in theaters. I paid a ticket. I paid for my ticket here. You can't. Yeah. Take Uh, we'll be back next week without patches, with, with something. We'll, we'll, we'll be here to talk about something. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. Uh, oh, wait. No, David starts with patches in here. I jump in the gun. Uh, what does patches tell people to do? Go to fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, well, 
I am David Ehrlich. Today we explored the mystery behind why I monologue at length uh, <laughs> at fast, unintelligible speeds. Um, you can go to fightinginthewarroom.com. That's what Pat just says. Uh, he's not here right now, so I'm <laughs> saying it. I don't know what you'd find when you go there, but I'm assuming access to our previous episodes, uh, maybe pertinent links to our current ones. I don't know. It's uh, anyone's guess. Go there to find out. Uh, you can also find all of us together on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Read us, leave us a review. We will read it live on the show. You can find me personally either on Twitter at David Ehrlich, on IndieWare, where I'm writing about Father Stu, America's new favorite dad, uh, on uh, <laughs> IndieWire, and also, of course, in The Lands Between, where my currently level 114 knight is uh, running around trying to kill Malekith. Uh, you know how I do it. Uh, but I don't. Um, and that's me. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E and on the Trial by Content podcast, where I debate ridiculous things with Joanne Robinson and Neil Miller. I'm not playing the Elden Ring because I have Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. But if you have uh, extra views lying around for this podcast and say live internationally, where your iTunes will. Of course, help us get listeners in your country or region when you leave us a review. Make sure to also copy that review and send it to fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. That way, we could read it on the podcast. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at uh, Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Uh, oh, I did in the reverse order. I'm at Vanity Fair also. And on the Little Gold Men podcast, where this week we talked about the Oscars again. God help us. Probably for the last time this year, we claim. Uh, yeah, and more, yeah. and, uh, no. and more about everything everywhere all at once, which is I, I would be happy to keep talking about for the next year, um, including uh, more optimism than you heard here about Michelle Yeoh's Oscar chances, if that's what you want to hear. Anyway, back to Twitter. You can follow all of us on Twitter, F-I-T-W-R, where you can just share your favorite multiverse from everything everywhere all at once. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was. In honor of Father Stu, what's the setting for the next big Christian drama? You can't say multiverse. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.